Hey, whew, that was quick. Merry Christmas, Crosswalk. I hope you are in the spirit. Uh, because I wrote the series guide for this one, I've been in the spirit since October. So you're welcome. And my wife is ready for me to live somewhere else. But uh, anyway, good to see you guys today. Uh, just to, before we jump into the teaching, uh, an appeal that I have for you. You guys know, I'm sure you've heard in the news that volunteerism across North America is down in, North, uh, in nonprofit organizations across the board, especially since the pandemic. Um, and in the church world, the place that that has been hit hardest is in kids' ministries. Um, and for whatever reason, um, you know, there are people that uh, feel less able or less willing to get involved in those areas, and so those that are involved, our leaders, our volunteers in that area, are getting burned out. So it's no different at Crosswalk Portland. And so I want to make an appeal to you today to consider, to think about, and to pray as to whether or not God might be moving you to help in our kids' ministry, because if we aren't teaching our kids how to love Jesus and love well themselves, then all of this is just for us. And all of this will die with us. So we have to teach the next generation about Jesus. We have to show him Jesus, shine Jesus, teach them to love well as well. Um, and so uh, it, it may be a, you know, once a month, it may be once every six weeks, but if you'd be willing to go in and teach a story or lead a craft or a game or something like that, we would be so grateful and our kids would appreciate it so, so much. Um, and our team provides you with all the stuff you need, so it would just be popping in and shining Jesus to them. So that's the appeal. Uh, oh, I even created a really cool slide for this one. I didn't show, look at that. Oh, man, I worked for like 12 hours on that slide, and then I almost forgot to show it. Um, so anyway, but that is, uh, that is our appeal today. Of course, there's all sorts of other ways to get connected, to get involved in the sport and help, but um, it's got to be about our kids. And so I uh, just want to put that out there for you, and thank you for prayerfully considering. And if you are one of those who have volunteered in that area, thank you so, so much. We are eternally grateful for that effort and that work. So. That's the appeal, and we are jumping into our sermon series called Adventure. And I'm so excited about that because we here in the Pacific Northwest have a bit of an advantage on the theme of adventure over our other campuses, right? Because adventure is our middle name, people. We live in the PNW. We got hiking, biking, camping, climbing, rappelling, you name it, we got it right? And when you talk about the Northwest, I actually looked at uh, Oregon Life had a survey recently for listeners to define what they think it means to live in the Pacific Northwest. What are the top characteristics of those that live in the Pacific Northwest? So let me share uh, those with you. Uh, one was you always go dress to go hiking even if you never go hiking. <laughs> it's one of the things that are true about Portlanders. All right, another one is you don't carry an umbrella and you roll your eyes when you see someone who does because you know they moved here from California. <laughs> Amen? Amen. All right. Uh, you have at least one time in your life considered trading in your Subaru Outback for a Toyota Prius. <laughs> I, thought, I wouldn't maybe hit close to home. All right. All right, uh, and, and though you consider yourself a kind and loving person that accepts all people, especially here at Crosswalk, we're a community of belonging, you recognize that you get very judgy when you see people standing in line for a drink at Starbucks. 
I, this is what people said. I have nothing to do with this. I'm just sharing information. And then lastly, of course, you love adventure. And adventure can be defined as an unusual or exciting activity, but it often involves some level of danger. You cannot talk about adventure without mentioning the word risk or there being some level of potential harm involved. So adventures can be exciting, exhilarating, incredibly fun, but like it or not, the best adventures have risk. Now, in truth, there are risks we take every day in life. Some of them we know about, some of them we don't, some of them we try to ignore and pretend they don't exist, but no matter how much we try to protect ourselves from it, risk is everywhere. There's a couple of areas that we know are risky, right? We take these risks every day regardless. Driving is risky. It's the riskiest form of transportation, more than flying. There are over 5 million collisions that happen every year, 12 of them each year by Yuli. Um, <laughs> sorry. sorry, I told myself I wasn't going to say it, and then the spirit was like, go for it, so blame her, I have nothing to do with it. Um, the other one, of course, is eating, right? Eating has great risk, and yet still we go to fast food, like, on a regular basis, even though we know that uh, heart disease and diabetes is in the top five uh, causes of death in the U.S. Incidentally, Chipotle is not considered fast food. So you eat there as much as you like, people. And I, yes, I have stock in Chipotle. But there are other risks we take each day that we may not think as much about, okay? So, for example, did you know that every year over 1,700 people a year die from sunstroke? 1,700 people a year. 1,600 of them are Irish. <laughs> Each year, over 25,000 people a year die from what is called sharp object fatalities. So when your kindergarten teacher told you not to run with the scissors, she meant it, okay? Uh, 15,000 people a year die from falling down stairs, true. Um, 25,000 people a year die from attacks by dogs. It's true, I live with this risk every day just to show you what I have to look at that. that one day she will eat me in my sleep. That's the danger that I live with. And then if you say to yourself, well, I'm a cat person, huh? You're not safe. Every year, over 200 people in the world are killed by cats. That's right. That's right. That's my daughter's cat. She's dangerous. So there are risks we take every day that we don't even think about. Now, I've had the opportunity uh, a couple times to travel to uh, the beautiful country of Australia. Australia is gorgeous, it's great, it's so wonderful to go and visit. These people that live in Australia practice the sixth love language, which is ridicule. So I, I fit in so well when I go there. It's like a second home to me. But Australians live with risks that many of us, it would scare us to death, but to them, it is just life, right? It's not a big deal. The first time I went to Australia, Trisha was super sad that she didn't get to go until I sent her a picture of what was outside my bedroom door the first morning that I woke up. Um, that is a huntsman spider, uh, and uh, they're ra rather large. They can't really, I mean, if they bit you, it'd be like a bee sting, uh, but there are spiders in Australia that can jump 10 feet and kill you with one bite. 
There you go. Uh, and then, of course, one time I was over there, and I, uh, the guy I was with took me to a quote-unquote petting zoo um, where a cute little kangaroo, they're so cute, was uh, interested in uh, a bag of cookies that I had sealed up in my pocket. Um, and so I was having, you know, a moment with the kangaroo when the host that I was with said, yeah, you know, those joeys can actually grab you, uh, your shoulders with their little arms and then gut you with their lower legs. Aren't they cute? I said, I would have liked to know that information before I walked over to the kangaroo. Thank you very much. And then there was another time I was walking on a college campus, going down a sidewalk, and a student came over to me and said, oh, pastor, you may not want to go down that sidewalk. And I said, why? I said, well, there was a lethal snake there just seconds ago. And I said to him, oh, I may not want to go down that sidewalk. You, so you're giving me the choice. I choose not to. So... Australians are just crazy. This is how they live. But over the next four weeks, we're going to explore the Christmas story, a story that for some of us has become so commonplace, something we tell this time of year and we imagine camels and donkeys and we imagine kids dressed up in sheets with halos made out of tinsel or strapped to their forehead. You know, and we forget the amount of risk that was involved in this story. We sing about silent nights and babies in mangers, but sometimes we miss the adventure that God himself set out on, an adventure that would come with a great risk, so full of risk that if God failed, all of creation would be sent into eternal darkness. But God knew the risks. He knew how hard it would be, how much it would hurt, and yet it's this time of year that we celebrate when God became human when the holy uncreated one became created, when he who holds reality in his hands, the almighty, the all power, the self-existent one took on our flesh and not just became a regular human but became the most fragile of humans when he became a baby. He became utterly dependent upon us, fallen, broken human beings. This is called the incarnation when God took on flesh and made his home among us. 20th century theologian J.I. Packer wrote, God became man, the divine son became a Jew, the almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The babyhood of the son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. And as the late Timothy Keller once noted, he said the incarnation is the universe sundering, history altering, life transforming, paradigm shattering event of history. So over the next four weeks, we're gonna go on this adventure found in the Christmas story and ask ourselves what kind of adventure is God calling us to now? Because I promise you that the incarnation of God is needed just as much today as it was 2,000 years ago and the risks are many. So, to begin the story, we're gonna look back before the birth of Christ took place, about 700 years before the birth of Christ, to be precise. The Israelites found themselves living in a time where, once again, they were disobeying the instructions their God had given them on how to live life. They were living in a time of darkness, and darkness in scripture can mean one of three things. It can mean a literal darkness, it can mean ignorance, and it can mean a spiritual darkness. And sometimes it means all three of those things. During this time, 
God was speaking through his prophet Isaiah in hopes to get Israel to repent and change their ways before they had to suffer the consequences of their choices. Isaiah writes, look to God's instructions and teachings. People who contradict his word are completely in the dark. That's ignorance. They will go from one place to another, weary and hungry, and because they are hungry, they will rage and curse their king and their God. They will look up to heaven and down at the earth, but wherever they look, there will be trouble and anguish anguish and dark despair. They will be thrown out into the darkness. Despite Isaiah and the other prophets warning the Israelites, they continued to ignore God's instructions. Within a few years, the Assyrians would conquer the northern kingdom of Judah and wage war against the, or the northern kingdom of Israel and wage war against the southern kingdom of Judah. Many of the Israelites in the north were scattered across the land and would never be able to return to their homes. Um, And even though the Assyrians were unable to take Jerusalem captive, the capital in the south, their attacks had their effects. Israel tried to correct their ways here and there and to repent, but nothing really took. And then within 120 years, Jerusalem was leveled. And the Israelites weren't just scattered. They were taken captive and put into exile in Babylon. It was a time for the Israelites where wherever they looked, there was trouble, anguish, and dark despair. Wherever they looked. Now we know the feeling of trouble and anguish and even dark despair today, don't we? I mean, it's hard to stay up on current events without feeling like darkness is winning the day, right? It often feels like Darkness is everywhere from foreign affairs failing to global powers drawing lines in the sand to wars where we don't seem to care anymore about civilian casualties. There's rampant corruption everywhere you turn. Violence abounds, violence in our homes, violence in our schools, violence in our cities. Mental health issues are skyrocketing. Illness and disease spread. Economic hardship and homelessness are pushing suicide rates up to a place they have never been before. Wherever we look, there is trouble, anguish, and dark despair. Now, we try to fix things ourselves. We try to, uh, you know, we, we think if we try hard enough, we can fix the world's problems. We look to the state or we look to the marketplace or we look to technology to fix things and we appeal to innovation and we, we appeal to intellect and we ask humanity to change but in the end no one knows enough to cure the darkness in this world we try to fight climate change but things only get worse we try to fix the government and give the power to the people but turns out people can't be trusted yes we need a light to push back the darkness but our light just isn't enough what we need is a light from somewhere else somewhere not of this world because here wherever we look we see trouble and anguish and dark despair. Through the prophet Isaiah, our gracious God assures the Israelites that no matter how bad things get, he will remain faithful. So God tells them, nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. That line, 
the darkness will not go on forever. It's a line that brings tears to my eyes. Really, God? Things won't always be this way? Kids won't always get diagnosed with cancer? We won't always be on the verge of war? Pain and heartache won't always rule the day? You see, when God says the time of darkness will not go on forever, he gives the Israelites and us something incredibly dangerous, risky even. He gives us hope. Hope. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Hope. But how will this happen? What will this light be? For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulder and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. Hope, but hope from a child? How will a child bring light into the darkness? Isaiah tells us, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This baby, this child, will come from another place. A light from outside of us will come and take residence within us. Hope. Hope will come in the form of a baby, but that baby will be like, unlike any other baby ever born. That baby will be God, and his birth and life will be a constant reminder that he is always with us. It was hope that the people of Israel would hold on to for hundreds of years through some incredibly dark times. I'm sure while they were held captive in Babylon, they would sit around the fire and they would talk of the prophecy. You remember what Isaiah said. You remember what was gonna happen. There's a prince of peace coming and his government will never end. But at the time, they would have to wait and wait and wait. Then one day, in a small town in a back alley, a being of light burst onto the scene to a teenage girl. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Then the man Mary was engaged to, Joseph, also received the news. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit and she will have a son and you are to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The God of the universe was coming into our world. The apostle John goes on to tell us, the one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world and that his Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it, or the darkness can never understand it. A child from another place, a light from outside the earth, coming to the earth to break the power of darkness. 
just like a candle in a dark room pushes back the darkness immediately, so too would the child push back their anguish and despair. It was news they had waited so long to hear. It was hope beyond their wildest dreams. And I'm sure that Mary and Joseph couldn't have imagined in a million years that they'd be the ones chosen to bring this light into the world. The risk for Mary and Joseph would be great, more than they could have imagined either. Their lives would be at constant risk, especially and even from their own family, who because of the religious law, would try to kill them for having a baby out of wedlock. That's why when they went to Bethlehem to register, Joseph took Mary. Because Joseph was the head of the household, he could have gone and taken care of things himself. But because he feared for Mary's life, he took Mary with him to go on this journey that would have taken four days, a very pregnant Mary sitting on a donkey for eight to 10 hours a day, and anyone in this room wonders why they call her a saint? I have no idea what to say to you, right? Off in a distant land, the hope continued to spread which is what hope does. It cannot be contained, right? A long ways away, near Babylon, wise men saw what they described as a star in the east. They had long since believed that a new ruler was coming from the east who would bring peace to the world. And because the Hebrews had left some of their texts behind in Babylon, they were able to piece things together. And when they saw that star in the east, they decided to take their own adventure that some say would have taken up to nine months. Nine months because they had hope that at the end of their journey, they would find the new king. The prophet Micah, a contemporary of Isaiah, would be the one who would prophesy the location of this event when he said, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. So the light, the answer to the world's problems would come into our world uh, through Bethlehem. The fulfillment of the prophecy would have the humblest of beginnings. Sure, Bethlehem was known as the city of David, the the, the greatest king to ever come to Israel. But that was a thousand years before. And Israel was still an agrarian city where there was more sheep than there were humans. So why would God choose Bethlehem? Why not Jerusalem, the capital city? Or why not Rome, right in the middle of the superpower? I mean, he could have turned the tables over from day one. So why Bethlehem? Well, I have a theory. You see, I believe it's because God loves an underdog. God loves to show up into the least likely of places and use the least likely people to do the most amazing things so that there is no doubt that it was God who showed up. A stuttering shepherd is chosen to face off against the superpower of Egypt and help lead Israel to the promised land. A scared, spitless teenager, Gideon, is chosen to lead an army of 300 against an army of 135,000. A shepherd boy with a sling takes down a giant that even the best soldiers were unwilling to go after. A man with unclean lips and a boy prone to tears become the greatest prophets Israel had ever known. Fishermen lead a revolution, and a murderer converts a nation and helps advance the largest movement ever in history. Yes, God loves an underdog. 
Maybe that's where we get our love for underdog stories. There's so many to choose from. I wanted to do one, and so I picked one of my favorites. And it's a story from 1980 that they call the Miracle on Ice. It was the Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, New York, and the heavy favorites to win the gold medal for hockey was the Russians, the Soviet Union. They had dominated the sport for decades. In fact, in the, in the 12 years leading up to 1980, every time the US faced the Soviet team, they lost. The, the tally over those years was that the Russian team had scored 117 goals over that time to America's 26. So they dominated. The U.S. team was a group of young and inexperienced players, mostly just out of college. Everyone expected a blowout in the semifinal where they were to meet, especially because a week before they had an exhibition game where the Russians beat the Americans 10 to 3. So they felt like it, it was going to be an easy obstacle to overcome. But the coach of the U.S. team, Herb Brooks, instilled something in the, those young men that would be dangerous. He gave them hope. Hope that if they worked hard enough, believed deep enough, and came together as a team enough, that they could do the impossible. The game began, and Russia jumped to a quick 1-0 lead in the first period. The U.S., surprisingly, tied it up, but Russia pulled ahead again, 2-1. Shockingly, the U.S. team again tied it up, 2-2, but in the second period, Russia pulled ahead 3-2, and the U.S. was scoreless. Then in the third period, after tying it up three to three, the U.S. team captain, Mike Yerzioni, shocked the world with a game-winning goal that left a young announcer, Al Michaels, to coin the now famous line, do you believe in miracles? Yes. We love a good underdog story, and so does God. And so in a time of darkness across the earth, when angu anguish and despair seemed to have the upper hand, in a small town called Bethlehem, a light came to the world. In the depths of human struggle, when all else seemed lost, hope burst forth. Just when you thought the story was over, God shows up. This hope would be named Jesus, which means God saves. And he came to save us from the darkness and from our sin, but he had another name. Also, that was Emmanuel, God with us. No longer would we have to go meet with God or hope that God would come near, for now God was near with us and he promised that never again would he leave us or forsake us. And here we are 2,000 years later and while we celebrate the incarnation, we too are waiting for yet another promise to be fulfilled. We wait for Jesus to return yet again to this world to take us on our next great adventure, our eternal adventure. But while we wait, we do have an adventure to be a part of now. For now, Jesus incarnates in us his body, his church. We are to be his light in this place, a community of hope to a world in darkness. We come to this place each week to remember that things are more than what they seem. Each week we come here to be reminded that no matter how bad it gets out there, we have hope. And we are supposed to carry this hope into the world with us. 2,000 years ago, God gave us hope by risking everything for us. What will we risk for him today? 
What adventure will we take to help bring more hope in the world around us? You may feel like the least likely person to bring Jesus into the world, an underdog. But if you let him, God will do things in you and through you that you couldn't imagine, just like the time he used a teenage girl and a carpenter boy to change the world. Saying yes to this adventure involves risk. People may judge us, laugh at us, look at us weird, but if we surrender to God, who loves us more than life itself, the world will change. Hope will come. God will move, and the craziest thing of all is he'll use us to do it. And yeah, it's gonna be risky, but it's also gonna be fun. Let's pray. Father God, um, man, thank you so much for risking everything to leave heaven, to come to this earth, to become one of us, and to trust us to take care of you, to feed you, to, to be fully dependent upon us. You did that to give us hope, to come into a world full of darkness and despair and help us know that this is not the end of the story. There is so much more to come and it begins now as we surrender our lives to you and you come to life in us. Father, thank you for this place that reminds us each and every week of the hope that we can have. Help us not keep it to ourselves, but help us go from this place to a world in so much need and may we be carriers of hope Invite people to come, to taste, and to see, and to realize that there is a great adventure that we can be a part of, an adventure you invite us to. And if we choose to go on that adventure, it'll change us, and it'll change the world. Thank you for the Christmas story. In the precious and holy name of Jesus.